Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 44 for the third quarter of July 2012. Now, before I get going, you will likely notice poor sound quality for this episode, and possibly for the next few. My good microphone died, so I'm resorting to a headset while I wait to hear from customer support. That said, the topic I'm going to talk about for today is independent evidence that the Apollo moon landings were real. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, are familiar with some of the more mainstream astronomy conspiracy ideas, or were around in the late 1990s and are familiar with Fox Television, then you know that one of the more pervasive memes out there, conspiracy or hoax-wise, is that NASA Apollo moon landings were faked, somehow, in some way, for some reason. You've also probably heard me go through many of the main claims on this podcast and debunk them, and there will be more episodes in the future when I go through even more. This episode, though, is something related to the Apollo landing mythos that you will rarely hear during a discussion of the hoax stuff, and that's the independent evidence that NASA did go to the moon, as opposed to the evidence against the claimed evidence that NASA did not. So, I'm going to take you through four different, hopefully easy-to-understand ways to demonstrate that we did really go to the moon. I'm going to do this in the order that I think is most convincing, with the least convincing first. Not necessarily that everyone would rank these in the same order, but some of them, like the first and the second, may be more difficult for the average conspiracy theorist on the street to understand. So we're going to start out revisiting one of the most predominant claims by Apollo hoax proponents, that of there being no photos of the stars in the photographs. For a thorough discussion of this claim, go back to episode 35. In it, and the upcoming video edition of that episode, I explained the concept of dynamic range and why exposures set for the lunar surface couldn't hope to capture images of the stars. But then came Apollo 16. Apollo 16 had a special far-ultraviolet camera with it. Why? because most ultraviolet light gets blocked by Earth's atmosphere, which is good for our skin, just like a lot of infrared light also gets blocked by Earth's atmosphere. It really was only in the dawn of the space age that the ultraviolet and infrared astronomy could do much of anything useful, and that's because it was blocked by the atmosphere. The Apollo missions to the moon had this same benefit, because the moon is above Earth's atmosphere, and one of the experiments that the Apollo 16 mission had was to do some FUV, or far ultraviolet, photography. And you can obtain some of these photographs today just by going online and searching. Part of the claim goes that NASA folks didn't put stars in the allegedly faked Apollo photographs because it would have been obvious to any astronomer that they were in the wrong place. As I said eight episodes ago, I'm not quite sure why they didn't just hire some of these said astronomers to make the star background for them so that they would be in the right place. But in the far ultraviolet photographs of the stars from the lunar surface, the long exposure photographs, the stars and other objects are in exactly the correct place, as later shown by the joint Bulgarian, 
British and Dutch satellite TD-1. This would have been impossible to do at the time because we didn't know where the FUV sources were in the sky or what their relative brightnesses in ultraviolet would have been or are. So to recap on this one, there are photographs of the stars, long exposure photographs in far ultraviolet wavelengths that do show the stars in the correct spots and would not have been possible to do because we didn't know where the far ultraviolet sources were in the sky at that time. The second line of evidence that I'm going to be talking about are rocks. This takes us back a bit longer to episode 11, where I talked about rock and dust claims of the Apollo moon hoax. In my discussion refuting some of the hoax claims, I talked about evidence that the rocks could only have been gathered off of Earth. Let's rehash that. First, the rocks that we have that are allegedly from the Apollo sample returns are definitely not from Earth. Every sample that has been radiometrically dated is older than almost every other sample of rock from Earth that we can date. Most rocks from Earth's crust date to about 2 billion years or less, meaning younger, with very, very, very few dating to 3 or 4 billion years old. The opposite is the case for the lunar samples. Just a few of the lunar samples date to roughly 2 to 2.5 billion years ago, whereas most of the samples date from around 3.5 to 4 billion years old, with the oldest, so-called Genesis rock, that was collected during Apollo 15, dates to 4.5 billion years ago, we think it having formed only 100 million years after the solar system's own formation. So sheer age is one of the reasons that we know that these rocks are not from Earth. Another is that they're ahydrous, meaning that they contain no water. The moon is incredibly dry. Yes, recent space probes and missions and imaging have shown small amounts of water locked up in some of the rocks, but for the most part, all of the Apollo samples are almost completely ahydrous, meaning they have no water within them. If these had been on Earth, opened the environment, any environment on Earth, even a desert, they would incorporate much, much more water into their structure, but they don't. Which is one of the reasons that we know they were not collected in Antarctica. Another reason that we know that these lunar rocks were not collected from Antarctica is that none of them have what we call a fusion crust, but they all have zap pits. A fusion crust forms on all meteorites as they fall through Earth's atmosphere because the outside melts, because it heats up really, really, really hot. Zap pits are mini craters that form on any rock exposed to space because of micrometeorite bombardment. All lunar rocks have them because the moon has effectively no atmosphere to protect the rocks from micrometeorite bombardment. Rocks on Earth don't have zap pits because we have an atmosphere. The Apollo samples have zap pits. The Apollo samples do not have a fusion crust. I think that that's pretty good evidence that they're from the moon, and that they didn't land here and we went and gathered them separately. As for a robotic sample return versus a manned mission, we get into a numbers game. Apollo returned half a ton, or about 385 kilograms, of lunar rocks. 
the largest weighing tens of pounds, while all Soviet robotic missions returned a total of 0.07% of that, or about 270 grams. Present-day technology, such as the Japanese Hayabusa probe to an asteroid, returned 1,500 tiny grains of material. This is a case where we really did not have the technology then, and we definitely don't have it now, to go have a robot pick up all of these rocks, let alone a single 10-pound rock, and return it to Earth. Until a few years ago, this third method was probably one of the most well-known and the easiest to explain to people who believed the Apollo landings were faked. The Lunar Laser Ranging Experiments, or LLR for short. The Apollo astronauts left behind a special kind of mirror array that's called a retroreflector. These are actually a series of mirrors inside of one mirror that has the really cool property of always reflecting light exactly back in the direction that it came from. Museums sometimes have these, and they're a bit creepy to look at, because no matter where you are, you will see yourself reflected back. It's not at all like a normal bathroom mirror. So the Apollo astronauts left these on the moon at the Apollo landing sites. This means that if you were to shine a light off of them instead of off the lunar surface, then you would get a much brighter return signal. It's like shining a light off of a dark piece of paper versus off of a mirror that you're standing in front of. If you have a powerful laser and a powerful telescope to collect reflected light, and you shine said laser on any old spot on the moon, then around two and a half seconds later you'll get a very, very, very faint signal back. If you aim at any of the Apollo retro reflectors, your return signal will be several times stronger. The only reason that they could be stronger is if they hit something that's much more reflective. Now, it is true that you do need a very powerful laser to do this. Even if you go to wickedlasers.com and buy their one watt or whatever biggest laser they sell, laser pointer, you're not going to hit the moon and get a return signal. The laser used in the Season 3 finale of The Big Bang Theory probably would not have actually worked. But you can go to several different major observatories in the world where this ongoing experiment is being done and see the results. I should also point out that this is not necessarily proof that the Apollo missions were manned. and We have to be completely objective here. This is just proof that we went to the moon. A subset of the hoax proponents do believe that NASA did send craft there, but they were all unmanned. Retro-reflectors can be deployed by unmanned craft, such as the Soviet Lunokhod 1 and 2. Both had deposited retro-reflector arrays as well. So, this explanation would not work for that particular subset of hoax proponents. The final topic is the photos. Not the photos from the surface. Three years ago, I couldn't use this topic, but the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that has been in the lunar orbit for over three years now has a narrow-angle camera that, in normal orbit, can resolve things as small as 50 centimeters across. That's about a foot and a half for all y'all Americans. And in August of 2011, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter dipped down into an orbit that had it image at up to 20 centimeter resolution before it went back up to its previous mapping orbit. 
the Apollo landers, rovers, several of the instruments left behind, and the width of the astronaut and rover footpaths are larger than 50 centimeters across. In other words, we have photographs of all the Apollo landing sites, much of the equipment left behind by the astronauts, rover tracks, astronaut boot tracks, and I will link to all of these photos in the show notes. So yeah, I'm not really sure what else to say about this one, even though I do have another four paragraphs written under this claim. So let's see what they say. Ah, okay. So we've imaged the sites, we have photos for them at varying resolution and lighting angles, and we've even found things in the photos that were unexpected and have led to revisions of the maps created by the astronauts and geologists in the years after the Apollo landings. And I should also note that the earlier Japanese Kaguya mission also provided some photos, though they were of poor quality and you couldn't really resolve the Apollo features. You just saw sort of one black pixel. So people claiming that NASA photoshopped these would also need to say that the Japanese did theirs as well. Now I've never actually seen any previous person who asked why photos hadn't been taken of the Apollo landing sites respond to these new photos in the past three years that they've been available. I suppose that their response would be the normal one for conspiracies, that any evidence against it is actually evidence for it. For example, I can envision a conspiracist saying, oh yeah, well, it's only now that NASA conveniently decided to actually make all these photos available because we were just getting too loud for them. NASA could easily have just made these photos in a computer, and we can't trust anything from the not-a-straight-answer organization. Of course, I could also be pleasantly surprised, and someone who believes that NASA faked this could listen to my podcast, see the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbit of Photographs, and change their mind and think, wow, we really did go. Go us. And yet, despite all of these, there are still people out there who think it was all a hoax. Literally, while writing this episode on Sunday afternoon, I got an automated email that someone posted a comment to my blog post talking about the infamous Sea Rock that hoax people point to and claimed that my analysis was wrong and that NASA faked the landings. They are still out there, people. Hopefully, this podcast will have added to your arsenal. I didn't see anything new news-wise this week that relates to an older episode, although I am recording this just about... 28 hours after I recorded the previous episode instead of packing for TAM. Remember that if you happen to see any new discoveries that relate to a previous episode, please send them in for me to discuss. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Bob S., who asks, in a paraphrased way, During a nearly new moon, the part that's not lit by the sun is still pretty bright and can be clearly seen with the naked eye. How much of this light would have been visible to the astronauts? Would shadows really have been pitch black as the hoax proponents claim? The answer to Bob's question is, not much. It's true that you can see Earthshine during a nearly new phase of the moon. That's the light that's emitted from the sun, reflected off of Earth, reflected onto the moon, 
and then reflected off of the moon back onto Earth and observed from Earth. But relative to the directly sunlit portions of the lunar surface, Earthshine is minuscule. You can demonstrate this with simple photography. If you go out and try to photograph the moon when it's a thin crescent, you'll probably expose the moon properly at about 1 30th of a second. To get any detail in the Earthshine, you're going to need to expose for something closer to 15 to 30 seconds or longer. This difference in time is directly relatable to the difference in brightness with most digital cameras, because most digital cameras are linear, meaning that Earthshine is somewhere around a thousand times fainter than even the low-angle sunlight near lunar dawn or dusk. So yes, this light would have been visible to astronauts, and objects in shadow could have been sort of slightly lit by Earthshine if they were not in shadow from Earth as well as from the sun. But the amount of light picked up by the cameras and the film the astronauts were using with their short exposures from Earthshine would not have been detectable. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, feedback will return with the next episode, the one due out June 24th. Which means that it's time for the puzzler, where each episode, or I hope each episode, or maybe not, I ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. There was a puzzler last time, but because I'm recording this just a day after the last episode came out, I'm going to discuss the solution in the following episode. This episode, with the main segment on the Apollo moon landings, the puzzler is more of a straightforward physics question, so it might be Googleable. An oft-repeated claim until 2009 was that, why don't you just point Hubble at the moon and photograph the landing site? Since NASA hasn't, it's proof that they aren't there. First, what kind of logical fallacy is that? Second, the answer to the question is that optical telescopes from Earth were and are incapable of the resolution needed to photograph any relics from Apollo. But, is the resolution of any Earth-based telescope or array at any wavelength that they detect capable of imaging Apollo? Please show your math, and link to the telescope's website so that I know what you're talking about. Try to figure out the answer, and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss the solution during the next episode, episode 45. And with that said, there are no announcements for this relatively, somehow, short episode. So, without further delay... That wraps up this topic for the 44th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, if you did not know you were listening to that. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, there are a gajillion ways to get back to me. One of them is Facebook. Another one of them is Twitter, Pseudo-Astro. Another one is 
emailing me, stuart at sjrdesign.net or podcast at sjrdesign.net. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website for the podcast or the SGU forums or whatever. I do read every message, even if I don't have the time to respond, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you like this podcast, please write a review, rate it on iTunes, and tell at least two random people about it. Thank you.